Hey, good morning, friends. Welcome back to yet another episode of Sitting at the Feet of Jesus. I am your host, Patrick Ransom, and I, I want to go ahead and address a, an issue today that is relevant to all of us. If if you've turned on the news uh, anytime recently, uh, friends, we are living in a broken, hurting world, and uh, we just see social injustice uh, all over the place. Um, and so I really want to look at uh, Amos chapter 5 today, asking ourselves as Christians, what is our response to social injustice? What is our response? Because because the Bible is clear, we, we have a response. We have a duty, if you will, to respond to social injustice. No one likes to be on the sidelines. You know, if you've ever played sports, you ever sat on the bench, you know exactly what I'm talking about. No one likes to be on the sidelines. It doesn't matter if it's football or if we're talking baseball or basketball. No one likes to be on the sidelines. Just take a third string uh, professional athlete, for example, right? They put in just as much practice as the starting player, yet they don't they don't start. They aren't paid anywhere near what the starter makes, but but they're still required to practice. They're they're on the team, but but friends, they're not really on the team. I mean, they're they're friends, they're family. They know they're on the team, but they never get to see them play, right? When, when you're on a team, you you want to represent that team and and you want to play. No one likes being on the sidelines. And my brothers and sisters in Christ, as Christians, when it comes to issues of social injustice, we simply cannot remain on the sidelines. It's impossible. Christianity demands a response to social injustice. Now, this is not a political message. This is, has nothing to do with Republicans or Democrats or conservatives or liberals. Our response to social injustice goes above politics, above party lines, and above agendas and affiliations. We're going to see this morning from the biblical text, from Amos chapter 5, that a people who worship God, must share his commitment to do right by all, especially those experiencing social injustice. So get out your Bibles with me. Uh, Amos chapter 5. Anytime you want to think of uh, social uh, justice and the Bible, the go-to prophet here is Amos. After all, he is considered the prophet of social justice, and for good reason. I, I love Amos. He doesn't hold back any punches when it comes to condemning Israel for their many social injustices, right? He he calls them out. He says that, that Israel's been trampling on the poor like they were dirt. That's chapter two. Uh, they're exploiting the weak and crushing the needy, chapter four. Exhorting unfair taxes from the poor, chapter five. Taking bribes and denying justice at, to the needy. That's also chapter 5. Stealing from the people in the marketplace is chapter 8. Amos, uh, my friends, did not sit on the sidelines. He wasn't afraid to expose these sins that oppress the poor and the needy, and neither should we. Clearly, God cares about justice and the poor. And if God cares about that, so should we. The fifth chapter of Amos contains some of the most uh, striking and the most famous justice language in all of the Bible. Uh, it is beautifully written, uh, especially in the original language of Hebrew. 
in our passage today, which is chapter 5, the first 17 verses are structured in a, a, a chiastic format. And you know I love chiasms, if you've ever heard from, uh, heard from me before. Uh, what what is a chiasm is, it's a literary device in which uh, a sequence of ideas is presented and then repeated in reverse order. Right, it, the the effect or the result is a mirrored effect uh, as it reflects back in, in the passage. Let me let me give you an example. Um, so a very common saying: when the going gets tough, the tough get going. That that is a chiasm, right? Uh, uh, ben Franklin's axiom: uh, by failing to prepare you are preparing to fail, right? It's also a chiasm. The, the structure of the chiasm is usually expressed through a series. You'll see it often as a letter representing an idea. So you'll see a structure of like A, B, B, A, which we refer to two ideas, A and B. So it would say A is one idea, B is a second, and then it would go in reverse order, another B and another A. Oftentimes, there is a, in a chiastic structure, especially in biblical uh, chiasms, we'll see another idea inserted right in the center. And it's, and it's what the author is doing is he's drawing your attention, he's drawing your focus to that one particular idea just by the way he writes this. He's doing something with what he's saying. In these first 17 verses, I'm going to read out quickly what, what and how this chiastic structure looks like, right? So the first idea is death is right around the corner. That's the first three verses. The next two verses is you need to repent. Verse 7 is because you stand guilty and doomed before God. And the center of our chiasm is God is all-powerful, and he's sovereign, and he's a judge. That's verses 8 and 9. Verses 10 through 13, go back, you stand guilty and doomed before him. 14 and 15, say, therefore, you need to repent. 16 and 17, otherwise, my friends, death is right around the corner. Do you see how that worked? Death is right around the corner. You need to repent because you stand guilty and doomed before God, who is all-powerful, sovereign God, or sovereign judge. You stand guilty and doomed before him, so you need to repent. Otherwise, death is right around the corner. The focus of what the author is drawing our attention to, it is God who is the all-powerful, sovereign judge. So what does the first three verses here tell us? Death is right around the corner, right? This is what it reads. It says, hear this word which I am lifting up against you, a dirge, which is a, a, lame, a lament for the dead. It's a mourning song directed at Israel. It's saying, house of Israel... She has fallen, she will not rise again. O virgin Israel, she has been jilted in her land. There is no one to help her up. For thus says my Lord Yahweh, the city which goes out with a thousand soldiers will return with only a hundred, and the one which goes out with a hundred will return only with ten to the house of Israel. Now, the house of Israel here is, is a direct reference to the northern kingdom. It's mentioned here in the third person, which indicates that this lament will be said by those people uh, standing outside of Israel, looking basically back in on Israel, and their destruction will be so extensive that the other nations will see it and respond. They will look at the destruction 
of the Northern Kingdom. She has fallen. It, it's a it's a a fact at this point. He's saying this is gonna happen, and it will appear to them as though the nation can never recover. She will not rise again. The claim is so staggering, y'all. It says that a thousand soldiers will go out, and only a hundred will return. Now, now let me put that number into perspective. During World War II, the United States lost uh, only around 2.5% of its military. Britain lost about 10%, and Germany, by some calculations, somewhere between 40 and 40%, 40 and 47% of their military. So imagine sending out 1,000 and only seeing 10% come back. That's staggering. And it's this type of devastating loss that will cause the lament of verse 2 to be sung over the northern kingdom. Y'all, they will be utterly devastated, and it will be a great time of mourning. Therefore, they're called to repent, verse 4 through 6. Seek Yahweh, for thus Yahweh says to the house of Israel, Seek me so that you will live. But do not seek Bethel, do not go to Gilgal, do not cross over to Beersheba, for Gilgal will absolutely go into captivity, and Bethel will become a disaster. Seek Yahweh so that you will live, lest he advances fire, O house of Joseph, and it will consume you, and nothing will be able to extinguish it for Bethel. Even even verses 4 through 6, y'all, have a chiasm within a chiasm. It, it really is amazing. Verse 4 says, seek Yahweh so that you will live. So does verse 6, seek Yahweh so that you will live. But the center, verse 5, is focusing on us here, but do not seek. And it goes through Bethel, Gilgal, Beersheba, right? These were places of worship for Israel that they had turned into idol worship. Right, verse 4 through 6 focus on this positive of what Israel should do. They should seek Yahweh and they should live. Well, verse 5 says, do not continue to seek false gods. It's this combination of exhortations highlighting that we are to seek Yahweh, but they are also to stop seeking false gods. They can't serve two gods. While the first verse is a simple exhortation to seek Yahweh, the last two provide the reason. If they do not seek Yahweh and turn from their first false gods, there will be judgment. Y'all, one of the reasons Yahweh warns people about coming judgment is to allow them a chance to repent. And we use this word repent uh, often uh, in what I would say churched circles, right? But if you were to use this word uh, to any unchurched people, any unbelievers, especially in cultures today, they have no concept of what the word repent means, right? This is literally a changing of the mind, which is a cha- which then flows into the changing of the heart, which pours out into a changing of the action. It is a change of direction, going one way, turning and going another. And it says, if they seek Yahweh, the result will be that they live as opposed to the judgment. Y'all, Israel had a choice. Their judgment is coming, but if they seek Yahweh, they will live. The, the solution to their impending judgment is so simple, yet for some, they won't do the one thing that will save them. So then here, verse 7 through 10 goes and uh, does this beautiful contrast between Israel and Yahweh. L- listen to verses 7 through 10. It says, 
You are the ones who turned justice into bitterness and left behind righteousness on the ground. He is the one, this is Yahweh, he is the one who makes the constellations, the Pleiades and the Orion, and who turns the deep darkness of night into morning and darkens day into night. The one who calls the waters of the sea and pours out the water upon the face of the earth, Yahweh is his name. He is the one who flashes devastation upon the strong and brings devastation upon fortresses. They, Israel, hate the one who mediates justice at the gate, and they, Israel, loathe the one who speaks with integrity. That's an interesting feature here in these in these few verses here, verses 7 through 10. We see this uh, almost a, another type of chiastic structure here. It's this, it's this interchange between starting with Israel, and then we see Israel's actions, and then we see Yahweh's actions, another Yahweh action, and then finally another action of Israel, right? Verses 7 and 10 focus on Israel's sins. It says, including that their lack of justice and righteousness, as well as their hatred of justice and integrity. And then our, our core verse here, 8 and 9, really describe Yahweh as creator and the one who judges. Just listen here to verse 7. It says they are, here's two significant features that we see about Israel. First, it's this turning of justice. Your, your translations may say something about wormwood. Uh, wormwood was a plant, a bitter plant. And the picture here, y'all, is that they've taken something good, which is justice, and justice is a major component of the Mosaic Covenant. They've taken this and they've twisted it or they've turned it into something bitter and distasteful. Not only did they pervert justice, they perverted righteousness. This image here is that Israel simply, you know, they were given righteousness and they've, they've placed it on the ground and walked away from it. They've turned their back on righteousness. But in contrast to their behavior and their actions, we see that Yahweh is described as the creator and the one who judges. He is the one who created the constellations. He is the creator of the constellations and, the, and all of creation. He has the power and the right, therefore, to judge Israel for their sins. Now, I don't want us to miss verse 8. So the last two words of verse 8 are a simple but profound declaration. This is uh, Yahweh Shem or Adonai Shemo. Yahweh is his name. All these actions and characteristics of Yahweh are part of who he is, which stands in stark contrast to who Israel is. Yahweh is the covenant name. It's a reminder of the covenant, the Mosaic covenant, which they have broken. So in contrast to Yahweh, verse 10 tells us Israel hates the person who faithfully carries out justice at the city gates. Y'all, the city gates uh, were, are, are, are like our modern-day courtrooms. So not only did they hate anyone who carries out justice, but they also hate anyone who speaks with integrity. Uh, friends, just, just turn on the TV and listen to the news these days. Uh, this is an issue of the times. Not only do they hate the Christianity that you stand for, they hate the fact that you speak with integrity, that you what you say is truth cannot be their truth. So let's look here real quick. Justice on the unjust here, verses 11, 13 says, Therefore, because you, Israel, exhort tax from the poor and exact a grain tax from them, you built houses of costly stone, but you will not live on them. You planted desirable vineyards, but you will not drink their wine. For I know your transgressions are many. 
and your sins are numerous, attacking the righteous, taking bribes, thrusting away the needy at the city gate. Therefore, at the time, the prosperous will be stunned into silence because it will be a time of calamity. Y'all, because they have taken money from the poor in a direct defiance of the Mosaic Covenant, which calls them to support the poor, Israel has accumulated fancy houses and desirable vineyards, but it says all that will be taken away from them. They will lose the very things that they lied and stole to achieve. And the reason verse 12 tells us that they face this judgment is because Yahweh knows. He's the creator of all things above and over all things, and he knows the sins that Israel has committed. They've attacked the righteous. They were taking bribes. They were thrust away the needy at the, at the city gate. And that judgment comes upon them. And, and friends, it says it's such a time of calamity that these people, these prosperous people, these are the, the people who made their money on the backs of these oppressed people they will be the prosperous will be stunned into silence it will be such a time of calamity that it will literally shut them up so therefore we're called to repent verses 14 through 15 again seek good and not evil in order to live and thus may Yahweh the God of armies be with you just as you have claimed hate what is evil and love what is good and establish justice in the city gates perhaps Yahweh the God of armies will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Verses 14 and 15 here are, like we said in this chiastic structure, they're echoes of verses 4 and 6. Both of these sections are calling us to seek or calling them to seek, uh, and both conclude, however, with a different promise. Verses 4 through 6 focus on what they should stop seeking, that's false gods, and what will happen if they do not seek Yahweh. But here, verse 14 and 15, y'all, listen to this. It says, this is how they are to uh, seek Yahweh. Seek good and not seek evil. And if you do that, there's a potential mercy that's waiting around the corner for you. If they are to seek and love good and hate and not seek evil, the Lord desires more than just, y'all, this is not just a change of action. This is a change of heart. This is the heart issue, which then pours out into changed lives. If the people truly love good and seek it, their changed hearts will be reflected in their actions. They will not be able to sit idly by on the sidelines as social justice occurs around them. It's impossible. Why? Because Christianity demands a response to social injustice. If God's people truly love good and seek it, then then the natural application here is that the righteous won't be attacked in the legal systems. They Bribes won't be accepted, and the poor won't be abused by the legal system. What was true then is also true for us today. Friends, as Christians, we're part of God's team. We're in the family, and we must stand up in the face of social injustice. We can no longer sit on the sidelines. Now, I don't want you to miss this because this is a very important component of, of this Amos chapter 5. The reason Israel abandoned social justice is because they first abandoned Yahweh, right? This order is important. They abandoned social justice because they first abandoned Yahweh. True justice in all areas of our society will only occur when people sincerely seek Yahweh. If God's people seek good and not evil, then he will be with them and not against them. 
And if they love good and hate evil, he will be gracious to them. Amos, y'all, it presents a message of hope, hope in the face of judgment, a hope to Israel and a hope to you and I today. And that hope is rooted in the graciousness of our Lord. That if we repent and we seek him, he will be with us. Let me close with this today. As I sat down and was praying this morning in in just response to uh, the massive amount of social injustice going on in our world today. As we long and fight for social justice, may we do so with Amos firmly in mind. May we realize that while we desire better laws and better judgments and better social interactions, we as Christians should be longing first and foremost for people to seek Yahweh. Is it good to encourage people to hate evil? You bet. Is it good to encourage people to seek good and do justice? You bet. But but we must remember that this alone cannot be our battle cry. We must cry out with the full message of the gospel that we see here in Amos, and that is to seek our Lord. Amen? Hope you have a great week this week, and we'll see you back again for our next episode. Have a great day.